Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. And who knows, it could be you next joining us on the programme. I'm delighted to say that joining us on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Moira Ashman. Moira is the CEO at St Cuthbert's Care, a regional charity working across the northeast of England and a frontline registered social care provider. Uh, Moira, a very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you, Scott. Hello, and it's my absolute pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme. Certainly is a uh, lovely day for it as well. And I'm right in saying that it's the 75th anniversary of your organisation this year, isn't it? So I think a congratulations is in order first and foremost. Oh, that's very kind, Scott. Thank you. It, it is indeed. It's our 75th um, year of providing care across our northeast area. Um, I think I've been here for 31 of the years, so I don't quite feel 75 years old, but I feel as if I've been there for a, for a fair bit. And I can imagine that this last sort of year and a bit as well will certainly feel like it's uh, sort of added a few sort of grey hairs of it, but I can certainly imagine. Um, I think we should certainly talk about that uh, because it is the elephant in the room. It's the context in which we're having this discussion as we record this podcast in August of 2021. Um, even though social restrictions are gone in England for the time being, we are still feeling the effects of the COVID situation, aren't we? And I think that's probably going to be the case for quite some time. But going back to sort of March of last year, when and really all of this started to interfere in our day-to-day lives. To what extent would you say, Moira, that all of this has affected you and affected your organisation? Oh, well, Scott, I don't think we've probably got enough time to cover all of the areas <laughs> and how it's affected us. It's been, obviously, as it's affected everybody, it's been quite dramatic across our charity. Um, and I think when I look back now, um, it's all a bit of a blur in that early sort of March 2020 time. Um, and it was a very frightening time as well. I think it's fair to say that. Um, and if I had to sum up, I'd say in short, I think we probably acted instinctively and very, very quickly. And I think they were the, probably the, the reasons why we've managed so well overall uh, over these last 18 months or so. Um, but I can remember the, the difficulties of those um, early days. And I think we we were locked down. Our services were as safe as possible. Um, we had sufficient staff numbers across um, all of our services. We had adequate adequate PPE uh, supplies. Um, we had all new working processes in place across every single service. Um, new business plans, contingencies in place. And we've done all of that in advance of the 23rd of March, the actual lockdown date. So when I look back, I'm not too sure how our charity managed it either, but it was quite a remarkable um, feat uh, in terms of what we did. And I think a lot of that is down to the efforts of your sort of frontline staff as well. Um, Leaders, of course, are very little without the teams around them. And what your team has certainly done is really step up to the plate, care for the residents and really sort of put their lives on hold. And we've heard some incredible stories from all across the care sector, haven't we, that people have been sort of staying in their care homes, sort of sacrificing family time, sort of keep people safe and sort of stay in one area. And that really, really does have an effect on the individual, doesn't it? So I think a lot of gratitude is owed to those very, very brave souls that have done that. Oh, you're absolutely right, Scott. Um, we couldn't have done everything that we did within our charity without our phenomenal teams. Um, they've been absolutely the heart of our charity and the, the lifeblood keeping everyone going over the last uh, 18 months. And as you say, they have put their lives on hold. Um, they changed their working practices completely. And I remember the very, very early days, and we were used to working um, with infection control processes. That's quite normal for us within our services, certainly within our nursing homes. But for our staff teams to be working um, longer shifts and, and having to work overtime uh, much of the time as well, and having face coverings on all of those times 
when you're working with people with dementia, when you're working with people with disabilities, um, the communication is key and it really affected being able to communicate as well as we'd want to with our with our service users and with our residents. And I remember our staff team um, struggling so much to work and um, to have their, their face coverings on. Um, a complete change. It was a, a complete uh, culture shock, really, in, in one way. Mm. Um, but it was, for me, really, it was, we took decisive action and um, we purchased as many things as we possibly could to help um, our, our staff teams work well. And we changed every working practice. And one of the main things that we did that I think contributed to um, helping us cope with the COVID situation was that we, we closed with a very heavy heart and um, chose to close our day centres um, for people with disabilities and our short break service as well. And that allowed me to redeploy those staff teams into our, our residential homes. And by mm. doing that, that really allowed us to, to, to keep our homes open and safe as we had to do so. And we didn't rely upon any agency staff throughout that whole period. And I think that was key in reducing any transmission risks at all. Um, but I do want to give a huge thank you to all of my staff teams. They were absolutely tremendous. Mm. They just rallied around um, and, and, and coped with all of the challenges that we, we faced. And apart from all the practical challenges, the... For, for me, I was very, very aware of the, the mental health challenges. Um, it, it affected all of us, there's no doubt. And, and that was a significant concern for us at the time. Yeah, certainly. Mental health has been very much on the agenda over the last sort of 16 or so months as we've become far more aware of our own sort of in well, not necessarily infallibility, yeah, because we're not infallible even as leaders, are we? Mm-hmm. It's um we're aware of our vulnerabilities, aren't we? We've become very, very self-aware. We've had this period of self-reflection and we are talking a lot more about both our physical and our mental health now. And people have really sort of suffered, particularly in the early days of the pandemic with that anxiety of we're facing this unknown. It's something that we're not quite sure about. And when you're in a care setting, especially in the early days, I mean, I can imagine that when people are sort of scrambling for PPE or even when they've got obviously access to the right protective equipment, you know, there's, there's still going to be a few sort of anxious faces around and managing that is also quite difficult from a leadership perspective. It, it was, it was really difficult. And I think overnight my, my role went to a leader of the charity, a strategist to um, really working with a forensic eye on everything and almost becoming a counsellor to, to our staff teams at times. Mm. I had many, many calls. Um, people quite literally saying to me, you know, Moira, I'm frightened. I don't know what, what's going to happen. And they were frightened for the residents. They were frightened for their own needs. Um, and I know everyone will have faced the same situation during the last um, 18 months or so. But it, when you face with that on a, on a daily basis, it was a very frightening time. And I had to, to support and motivate our, our staff team as much as I possibly could. So I felt my role changed dramatically um, in my shift, my, my five-year plan, which we were working on from uh, 2020 to, to 2025, really, um, just went out the window. You know, I was bothered around how my staff teams were coping, um, motivating, and and I listened a lot, lot more. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of my time was spent listening to people just wanting to talk, wanting to, to offload. And I think that was so important at that time. So there's no doubt I had to change my way of working, uh, my my focus and my priorities changed overnight. And um, and I, I recognised the fact that my my staff um, sort of priorities had changed as well. And they were working in very difficult physical environments, but they were frightened as well. And that was the biggest consideration for me. And I'm so pleased that our charity has always taken. The, the mental well-being of our, our staff teams very seriously indeed. Mm. And we've always had, as long as I can remember, and I've, I've been at our charity for nearly 31 years now, but we've had a, a free, confidential, professional staff counselling service in place for our staff teams. And I think it's certainly been um, used more than ever this year. Um, but I, I think it's a, a, it's a really, really important aspect to, to have in place. And, mm. and, and also, I wanted to recognise... For this year, 
the, the value of, of the efforts of, of my teams. And in the, I think it was the March, um, April, May time, uh, 2020, uh, my fellow staff, my fellow trustees and, and directors agreed to, to pay a hundred pound bonus to all of our staff teams. So we did do that. It was a, a tiny offering in one respect from our charity, but it was just a gesture to, to keep people motivated in a, in an, in a, an action so people could really see how much we cared for them. Mm. Um, and, and we've continued to do that at the end of the, the year, for this year moving forward. Um, We've taken some real tangible action to, to thank everybody. And we've offered all our staff teams one extra paid week's holiday. And um, that's it's been at a considerable cost to our charity, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. And I've been delighted to be able to offer that to, to our teams as a, as a way of thanking them for everything that they've had to go through. Mm. I think it's been a sort of ironic development, hasn't it? That even though we found ourselves having to socially distance, we've almost become a lot closer and we've got a lot more trust in each other, haven't we? Because of how we've applied ourselves and really rallied together during this period of time. And I think we're seeing that in the relationships between leaders and employees within an organisation because like leaders have had to show their vulnerability as well. They've had to offload. They've had to sort of sort of move away from this idea that, I'm the one at the top, I'm leading by example, I've got all of the answers all of the time because I don't, I, we're facing an unprecedented challenge and I've got to now sort of show my vulnerability and that fosters trust, doesn't it? So I think we've learned an awful lot about sort of the human condition during this time and I think almost we're much better off for it, aren't we? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Scott. I, I think for me, um, for the leadership side of things around the for the last few months, um, it, it's driven by personality, and I trust people. It, it, I think leadership is all about trust, as you're saying. And I trusted my teams, and they trusted me. They trusted the decisions I was having to to make very, very quickly, and I trusted them to to do everything they could do uh, to to make sure that our residents and our service users were having the best experience possible in, in such difficult circumstances. And I think that's where our charity culture comes into play. Um, it comes into its own there because we employ, I'd like to think, the very best of people. I'm sure every organisation says the mm. same as well. But we, we employ people who, who care, who have the right values, who would really put people first. And for me, that really came into its own. I could see that. Um, as you, say, you said at the beginning, people put their lives on hold. Um, we changed everything um, in their lives to, to make sure that that they could continue to, to operate with a duty of care. So they made sure that they restricted their um, activity outside, their social activity. I appreciate most of the time, most of us had to, we couldn't do much else. But they took their work very, very seriously. They, took it, they put it first and they put our residents first. And that was very evident to me. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we've, we've managed so well um, over the, the last few months. Um, so trust is absolutely... Uh, right in the middle of it all definitely no doubt about that and one thing i want to touch on just out of curiosity with regards to sort of government leadership through this there have been a lot of sort of um reaction let's say to sort of the timeliness and the clarity of certain guidelines right the way through this particular sort of crisis um have you sort of felt right the way through that you've been kept well informed and in the loop and it's clear what's expected of you to continue operating safely throughout this or have there been occasions where you think we're fending for ourselves a little bit here? Um, to be honest, I think I felt a little bit of, of all of that at times. Um, it was so fast-paced, things were changing so quickly. Um, and, and just to give you one example, even if we changed a visiting policy or if we got a government a government announcement to what we could and couldn't do around visiting and our nursing homes, for example, we had to rewrite a, a visiting policy across all of our, our services. We had to put it into play. We had to inform all of our uh, residents' relatives uh, and our residents themselves clearly and inform our staff around it as well and put practical things in place. And sometimes we had to do that immediately. Yeah, that kind of task would take several days or two weeks to, to, to process to, to get it, uh, to get sorted. So we were working against the clock on, on those kind of decisions. And 
I could accept them. I understood them and, and had no problem with them. Um, but it was it was very difficult. And at times, we, we I did feel, I've got to say, I did feel we had a bombardment of information from different sources. Um, and, and at times, certainly the very early days, I just had to cut through it and think, right, what's the most important thing here? The most important thing for me is to keep our staff and our, our residents safe. So I acted acted instinctively, I think, on, on most occasions. Um, thankfully, my instincts and actions, I think, have co- uh, coincided with, 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 with advice and um, that hasn't been so bad. But there were times I acted first and informed regulators second. Um, and that would never be something that I would have done. We, you know, we're very transparent, we're very inclusive in how we work here at our charity. But sometimes I just didn't have the time to go through correct processes and mm. inform everybody. So I had to just make a decision. Um, and that was a really um, an unusual way to work. And it's not how we would choose to work. But we were forced into that way of working. But yeah, we had information coming from us at every level. We had government instructions. We had um, local authority instructions. We had our local NHS professionals involved. Um, we had a lot of different levels of instruction coming through to us from our regulators to, uh, as well. So it, we, we had to sort of, you know, try and streamline it all, read through it all, understand it all, put it into actual play, put it into practice, into real processes and into inform inform all of our staff teams and, you know, times we've got over 300 staff in our services and it's a, it, it's a lot to get through and to communicate. And um, and when you take into account, you know, we didn't have a full staff team. We had probably at any one time up to 30 to 40 people off isolating um, or, um, you know, whatever the circumstances were. We didn't have a full staff team to work with, so we were stretched. So, yeah, it was difficult, and we did have a lot of information to, to cycle through. And I do remember um, that there was one occasion very, very early on. I think it was in the March time, end of March, beginning of April. And I remember there was so much information. I was at home. Um, most of my teams at that time were at home, working, directing everything uh, there at that time. We were going into the office at well, as well. But I remember that night, just not going to bed, there was so much information coming through, so many emails, um, and we just ha- had to work through it. My teams were the same as well. So, yeah, a lot of information. That did ease as time went on, um, but the early first few months were very, very difficult, particularly the first few weeks. Mm, can certainly imagine so. And um, looking back over the sort of last sort of 16 months by and large, would you say that this experience of crisis management, if we call it that, has really taught you anything in your leadership role and you've come away maybe taking some real positive lessons and becoming more resilient from this? Um, yeah, I, I, it has taught us a lot. I think it's all about resourcefulness. I think that's what business is about. And to me, it's about getting the job done no matter what. And it did show us that, um, you know, in a crisis, in a, in a pandemic, that uh, our charity could... could um, step up to the mark and, and, and do its best, and it very much did that um, in, in what were mo- the most difficult of circumstances. And with effectively no rule book or, or a very much a changing rule book. Um, and I think it, it, it was very, very difficult, and we managed it. But respectively, as I say, at the time, we weren't really aware. We just responded and responded and responded um, and acted in, in the best way possible. But when I look back, yes. It was exhausting and it was um, difficult to just cope with everything that was going on. But, but we did it and we did it as, as part of a team. And I think that, that again, com- comes back to our charity's culture. Um, we worked together and I think the teamwork within our charity at that time was just phenomenal. And I'm so proud of everybody, uh, all of our teams and of our service users and our residents and, and our young people in our children's homes. You know, they were kept in their homes for so long, so alien to them, and they all did remarkably well. It's really, really encouraging to hear, and just sort of thinking about now what is likely to come on the horizon. We're in a little bit of an uncertain period, aren't we? Because we know that social restrictions have gone in England for the time being, but we don't know whether 
sort of COVID and other respiratory illnesses are going to be making a comeback in the autumn and the winter. There's already talk of vaccine booster programs um, at the moment. Um, so just sort of looking ahead to sort of the winter months and maybe ahead to this time next year, Moira, just before we wrap things up on the show today, what are some of your priorities going to be at St Cuthbert's Care moving forward over this next 12 months? And by this time in 2022, is there anything that you're really hoping to have achieved? Um, right. Well, it's, it's always a very much a moving feast at St. Cuthbert's Care. But mm. I think very short term, um, I would like to open. I still have one closed service, a, a very important service. That's a short break service for adults with disabilities. So I'm going to be looking to, to open that as safely as possible. And I think COVID will always be with us now. And it's going to be part of our working practices. And most of our working practices are working well now. Um, so the, the next thing I'll be looking at really is the social care sector being part of that sector. Um, we've got mandatory vaccination coming up, so I will have to look at that to see how we can move forward with, with that um, area by, by November. And longer term, really, I just want to get back to, to what we do best, really, in our five-year plan. It, it's all about the expansion and of our, of our services and um, sort of doing what we do well, um, even even better really, because we, we are regulated by Oxford and by the Sick Care Quality Commission, and we are expect and we're, we're externally inspected, and those external inspections um, are, are very, very important for us, that they decide on whether people want to use our services or not, and all of our inspections at the moment um, our regulated inspections, all of our services are rated between good and outstanding. And I want to improve upon that significantly so. Um, and I think we've got the confidence now, I would say we feel we can almost cope with anything if we've coped with the last 16, 18 months or so of, of the most terrific time for everyone. I'm not sure how it can get any worse than that, Scott, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> not not um, wishing anything on at all. But, you know, I think we can cope. I think we've proved that we, we can cope. Um, we've got the, the aptitude, the skills, the ability within our charity um, and the determination, the drive to just get through it. So I feel confident and I feel very positive. But I'd like to really get back to where we were in a, a year or so ago and to back to focusing on our strategic objectives, really. That would be lovely and still providing excellent care, that would that would be where I'd like to see us in a, in a year's time. It would be fantastic for that to be able to happen, wouldn't it? And I think given that, you know, we're still in that little period of uncertainty, as you've said before, I'd love to actually catch up more. You're perhaps eight, nine months down the line and maybe sort of see where you're at with those aims, because it is a period of time where we're not quite sure what's happening. We're in a little bit of limbo with the COVID situation, but hopefully, you know, we're heading for better days and we can show that resilience again and just keep moving forward, can't we? Oh, Scott, I would love to. It would be absolutely delightful. I would love to come on and be able to talk all positive, uh, about all positive things. It would just be lovely to come on and, and chat positively about everything that's going on in our charity. And I'm sure I will be mm. uh, by then. So, so thank you very much for that, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a shame we're just about out of time today because I could literally talk about your about this all day, Moira. It's um, honestly fantastic. The positivity really, really is infectious. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully have a chance to speak again on the show, uh, do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on in the world because we're not quite clear of it all yet, but I think we're getting there. I, I agree. We're, we're not quite there yet, but thank you for having me, Scott. I've really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure speaking to Moira Ashman, CEO at St Cuthbert's Care, on today's podcast, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Uh, coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by Lord Blunkett, the chairman here at the Leaders' Council and former Education Secretary, who will be interviewed by Matthew O'Neill. He'll be discussing some of the thoughts that he has on the pandemic, given the 16 months that we've recently had, as well as his hopes for this period of economic recovery that we're hopefully entering now that restrictions have been lifted in the UK. Uh, that will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have 
confidence and courage, obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. 
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately 
whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.